Rewind. Your Week in Review is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association. Bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate. This program is brought to you from Wisconsinized Margaret Farrow Studio. This week on Rewind, your week in review. The wait is finally over. The Universities of Wisconsin receives tens of millions of dollars months after reaching a controversial deal with Republicans. Plus, with just a few days left in the legislative session, we break down what bills are alive and those in jeopardy. And we tell you just how much it costs for the state's high court to hire redistricting experts. All that and more on Rewind, your week in review for March 1st. Hi, I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. J.R., we're going to begin this week that uh, about the universities of Wisconsin finally get a big chunk of change, uh, which is all part of this deal, this controversial deal, I should say, that Assembly Speaker Robin Voss and UW System President Jay Rothman made back in December, which is tied to a much broader deal uh, to curtail diversity, equity, inclusion efforts. So on Thursday, the Joint Finance Committee kind of made the final step in part of this deal, um, and it's finally come to a close after they approved $32 million in funding to allocate to all UW campuses. Um, now, the UW system will use these funds to bolster the workforce by expanding programs and high-demand jobs, such as engineering, nursing, and healthcare. Now, while during debate on this on the committee was supposed to be about this workforce proposal, it kind of turned in from Democrats, once again pointing the finger at Republicans, accusing them of withholding this funding hostage. Meanwhile, Republicans defended that, hey, we wanted proof that they weren't going to use this funding for DEI stuff, and we wanted them to instead use it towards, you know, helping ease the worker shortage for future generations. So let's take a listen from both sides, and then we'll kind of dive into uh, what are the other aspects of this deal and who will get some funding. Every time we do this, it takes a toll, and it sends a message that either we don't value what they're doing, or that we don't value the 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 contribution that they're making both to the future of the state and to our workforce. I don't know how we expect to attract talented young people to our state when we have elected officials who are playing games with the best institutions that are preparing the workers of tomorrow. I don't think there's any debate among the committee on either side of the aisle about their importance. Where the debate is is about what's important. And we ask them, we challenge them to focus more on workforce and the future of the workforce of the state and that's the plans before us we are accepting their plan when i hear this rhetoric from the other side here this morning and you know like oh campus you know reductions and all that it's got nothing to do with this so i know i originally talked about how this was part of that deal that once again was back in december but this is now after eight months mm -hmm. this funding is finally released because take back all the way when the budget was passed in june then we get into july governor evers signed it and it was just shortly just days after that is when speaker voss said whoa whoa whoa, whoa. they're not going to get this funding quite yet until they prove to us that they can cut dei and show us a workforce plan so this is kind of like i said final step deal is done now the money is there um, a lot of universities will be getting different types of funding uh, but in general it's all going to go towards a lot of these programs that we talked about to help ease the worker shortage. Yeah, the biggest two are the Milwaukee Madison campus, about five million bucks a piece. Other ones are two million dollars a two-year period. We've seen the Joint Finance Committee increasingly use this tactic where it creates a, a, 
keeps it in supplemental appropriations called, where there's the money is held back, you come back with a plan for it, and we'll give it to you, largely because there's a Democratic governor and a Republican-controlled legislature. We've seen this play out with the PFAS legislation. That money is still sitting there for that. This is a tactic, though, to try and persuade, pressure, whatever word you want to use, the person wanting the money to do it the way you want it done. Um, hasn't made the governor happy. Also worth noting that the deal Robin Voss struck with the University of Wisconsin required them to pass the, or release the money by the end of February. They made it just under just the deadline. Yeah. <laughs> so you, now you've got that money released, the pay raises approved, there's the funding for the building systems, and all that kind of good stuff. So they are getting the reward of taking the punishment of getting rid of, of curtailing DEI positions. All right, and uh, you mentioned PFAS, and that leads us right into our next topic because this week Governor Tony Evers reiterated that he will veto a GOP bill uh, that would create grants to fight so-called forever chemicals, which are known as PFAS, and he again asked GOP lawmakers on the Joint Finance Committee to release $125 million, which was set aside in the state budget to deal with PFAS contamination. Um, this has been an issue, JR, at the state capitol that lawmakers just cannot agree upon. Mm -hmm. Now, we know the money is there. The pot of money is sitting in joint finance. But again, like you mentioned, lawmakers just can't come to an agreement on how to best spend it. We also hear this argument many times from, you know, we know where PFAS is largely. It's a little bit of Madison. It's in a lot of municipalities in the Green Bay area, Wausau, or some of the worst areas. But if it's not in, quote, your backyard, a lot of lawmakers don't really have a sense of urgency to get this done. There's also this kind of uh, hang-up about what they call innocent landowners. So remember, PFAS are in all kinds of things. Um, some farmers, for example, spread biosolids from municipal waste um, facilities on their fields as fertilizer. There are PFAS in those. There is a concern from Republicans that if they pass what Evers wants without more strings, then they will go after these farmers, these innocent landowners who didn't put the, they didn't put the uh, pollution there intentionally, their innocentness, they can then get caught for the cost. So that's a hang-up. It's a repeat of what we've seen time and time again of the money is there, but the policy can't be agreed upon. Remember, elimination of the uh, personal property tax, which is a property tax on business equipment. It was The money was put aside in the 2021 budget. They didn't finish it until 2023, so you could hammer, couldn't hammer, hammer out language until then. So again, it's been used for a long time, but it's becoming increasingly popular uh, tactic by Republicans and Joint Finance Committee because we have 20 years in the governor's office. Right, and we also saw a package of bills uh, proposed by a, a Democrat this week trying to, once again, try to address this issue, but it always comes back to the same. It's convincing other lawmakers that this is a sense of urgency in the state. Of course, you know, I'm not belittling this mm -hmm. issue at all, um, but if it's, uh, I think it's Senator Brad Paff who introduced those bills, uh, you know, in his area, lacrosse. PFAS contamination is an issue. It's something that he believes is something that we, the state needs to work on, but convincing others that it's a much broader problem it, it seems always to be the issue. All right, let's move on to um, kind of looking ahead to not next week, but the following week is going to be likely the Senate's last session day as the legislature is coming to a close for the end of the two-year session. Uh, so we kind of just wanted to you know, talk about what bills are alive, what bills are in jeopardy, and which ones are basically DOA. So mm -hmm. if you take a look at this slide, these are just kind of the, the themes of obviously many bills uh, 
what is alive right now. This week, a lot of Senate committees um, exec uh, human trafficking bills. That was another task force uh, that was uh, put forth this legislative session that would address the issue. We also would uh, likely going to see some bills on the floor that would add protections for judges and justices as threats in recent years uh, have becoming a new high. Uh, bills that are likely in jeopardy. Um, that is the Monday processing bill that would allow clerks to process the absentee ballots the day before an election. Also, a bill dealing with power lines and right of first refusal. We'll get to that in a little bit. And GOP tax cuts. We've talked about this before, JR. Of course, there's four bills in the package. Governor Evers is likely going to sign some of them, but not all. We'll see what he does with those. Um, and for sure, that is dead, is legislation uh, to legalize medical marijuana and the PFAS issue that we just talked about. Now, going back to right of first refusal, I think is the most bill that is still being lobbied uh, for right now in the state capitol that's still in jeopardy because the big question mark is whether Senate Majority Leader Devin Lemahieu can bring it to the floor and have enough votes to get it done. So remember, um, you have to pass the same version of a bill in the Senate and Assembly to get it to the governor's desk. That means either it's got to be the Assembly bill or the Senate version. The assembly version, we call it ROFR uh, in the Capitol, right of first refusal, passed on a voice vote. Now, there were probably about a dozen Republicans who registered their opposition to it in the record because they don't like the bill. But what this does is we are expecting Wisconsin to see about $2 billion in high-voltage transmission line work in the coming, I think, decade or so. About $10, million, 10 billion bucks overall in the Midwest. The bill would give these existing transmission facilities that, that have these, you know, basic connections the first shot to build something. Now, for proponents, this is a bill that would uh, help with the, you know, get this work going. It provides certainty. For opponents, this is a bill that cuts off uh, competition. They have a big problem with that. So the assembly version was sent over to the Senate most of the time. When assembly version comes over from the Senate, it just goes to Senate org, the committee organization, which then can schedule it on the floor. Chris Capping, the president, however, sent the bill to a standing committee, which is a rare thing, number one. Number two, he sent it to a committee that was chaired by Rob Coles, who's not a big fan of the bill, instead of the committee chaired by Julian Bradley, who co-authored the bill. There's a red flag. Obviously, Cappy is trying to kill this bill. Now, if a bill is in committee, you can't vote on it unless you get a polling motion. A polling motion requires a two-thirds vote of the chamber to pull a bill out of committee and onto the floor. The math, though, is let's say Senate Democrats are 10 of them right now. I don't think you're going to get all 10 on that bill from what my conversations with people. So let's say best case scenario, you get nine, okay? That means you need 13 Republicans to vote to pull that bill with all nine of those Democrats out of committee on the floor. I don't know they had the votes to pass the bill right now with that many Republicans. What you might see, you might see Republicans say, okay, look, I'm, I'm a fan of Devin Lemahieu and his leadership. I don't like this bill but this is important to Devin, I'm going to go with him on a procedural vote, then vote no on final passage. This is like best case scenario for Devin, let me right now. I'm trying to illustrate the long shot this is, get this bill through. How does Devin get those 13 Republicans on board with this, this procedural vote? Don't forget, just a few months ago, the alcohol bill. So this big overhaul of alcohol, mm -hmm. stuck in committee. Uh, he took this whole giant bill, made an amendment to a different alcohol bill, and got it through that way. Um, that was kind of creative. Devin's creativity is limited by what's going on because he can't take that uh, Senate bill and attach it to anything, right? Because well, the assembly's, the assembly's gone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He has to work with that assembly bill. 
How do you get that assembly bill out of Coles' committee, on the floor, and to a final vote? That's going to be this challenge. And again, what coalition is there for, or what appetite is there for Republicans to do this? And don't forget, Republicans, a lot of them, like the Rule of 17. It's kind of a, not a hard, fast rule, but it is the idea that if you're going to pass anything, it's 17 GOP votes. Well, if you take 13 to get to the floor with nine Democrats, that's, that's a big break, <laughs> rule of 17. It's not like using one or two. That's a lot. So this is like the dynamic of this kind of tension over this bill in the Senate Caucus right now. Right. And the process that you just explained of the ways you could pull it out of committee and getting two-thirds on the floor to do it is something that has been widely discussed, too, about the Monday processing bill. Now, the, the bill is sitting in Senator Dan Canodal's committee. Um, at first, he was widely against of removing it from committee. And then he was like, well, if the Senate leader wants to take it out of committee, he can. It was a few weeks ago I asked the senator, hey, you know, you have the options to do this. Why don't you do this? Instead, he explained to me the ways of how he can do it but didn't really answer my question because the big reason why people keep talking about this bill is because it's bipartisan. It seems like there's a broad support for it. But on the other hand, I think, you know, J.R., you described this. A lot of Republicans feel that they don't want to be at fault for passing something like this because there's still this group of uh, individuals who believe that it could lead to more increased fraud by allowing clerks to process the day before. Maybe they're already tallying votes and stuff like that, which is not the case. Um, All clerks are doing are opening ballots, checking if there's a missing address, a missing zip code, kind of just to be able to be ready to feed them into the machine on election day. Um, So, you know, we'll see what happens. I mean, there's always maybe sometimes surprises on the last session day. Um, That is just something that, you know, a lot of people are going to be watching for if it might go. But it could also be dead because a lot of people have already called the proposal dead. (laughs) If you're a cynic, the right of first refusal bill might have legs because there are people who have deep pockets and lobby heavily and write checks who are behind it. Um, I checked the most lobbied bills in the second half of 2023. That almost doubled up the next one before the legislature. The early count bill doesn't have a moneyed interest behind it. Very true. It's just the argument of this would be good government. So, if, again, if you're a cynic, you might think that's part of what's why this one's getting more attention than that one. Two, I talked to the head of the Milwaukee Election Commission. She talked to me like, look, uh, we're expecting about 100,000 absentee ballots this fall. So maybe they're done by midnight, you know, kind of like time frame, have done, taken the county and report them. Sure. Which would be much better than 2020 when it was like 4 o'clock in the morning. Um, and also a lot more absentee ballots. Yes. Yeah. And that's part of it. You know, right. that plus the question is uh, how many people they have working there. And two, don't forget, it sounds odd that it takes a lot of work to like process an absentee ballot, but Milwaukee actually purchases machines that just open the ballot mm-hmm. just to take one step out of the process to kind of get this thing rolling. That's how labor-intensive it is. All right. Let's move on to funding for hospitals. After Governor Tony Evers signed a bill into law on Wednesday that would give a big boost, about $15 million to hospitals in western Wisconsin. Um, but it comes after he, after recent announcements of closures of uh, health care facilities in Chippewa Falls and Eau Claire. Now, however, GOP lawmakers were very critical of this move uh, shortly after um, because they vowed to block this funding because Evers used his line item veto authority to expand how and where the money would be spent. So this is, again, another example of how the governor got creative with a bill that was sent to his desk and instead tried to basically reallocate where this money would go. 
And of course, it comes, like I said, that some of these uh, healthcare facilities in that Western Wisconsin district or area um, are, are soon to close, unfortunately. That's why you're seeing more and more Republican lawmakers put the funding in one bill and the language in another, because it makes it harder for the governor to play with, in their minds, the language and change out their intent. All right. Um, also, for those interested, the uh, hospital systems that we're talking about are Hospital Sister, Sisters Healthcare System and St. Joe's Hospital in Chippewa Falls, um, and another one in Eau Claire are the locations um, that announced that they were begin layoffs uh, next month. All right, let's get to the topic of redistricting, and the news um, of this week is how much it just actually cost uh, for those experts to be hired by the state Supreme Court. I should clarify, liberals on the state Supreme Court. So the consultants, um, the head a combined total of a little bit more than $128,000 in expenses, according to a new filing. However, the storyline here to JR is that that is significantly less than the $100,000 each of the individuals who are assigned and hired by them, um, they were eligible to receive. So in a sense, kind of a little savings here. (laughs) Yes. So the big question of that money right now are who's going to pay it? So there are basically six parties with the lawsuit. You had Law Ford, the Democratic firm that filed the lawsuit. You had the conservative voters represented by Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. You had a group of professors in Milwaukee and Dane counties. Then you had Senate Democrats, Governor Evers, and Republican lawmakers. What's the split going to be, number one? And number two, that is a fraction of the legal bills that been incurred by private attorneys. I get those every so often from legislature. I'm at more than a million dollars in counting what's been turned in by the private attorneys. Now, Governor Evers was represented by Department of Justice, so there's not a public cost. I mean, they're putting in you know, hours and hours in the case, but it's not above and beyond their usual stuff. But those private attorneys, one million bucks in climbing. Will we get to like more than the 1.6 million from the last lawsuit? Well, we'll see. Um, this one ended kind of early. There's still one big issue kind of hanging out there. That is, is this map in place right now for a special election or a recall election? Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, recall folks, uh, March 10th is the deadline for the opponents of Robin Voss to turn their, their signatures if they have them. We will then maybe find, push come to shove, what map is in place, if any, for that recall effort. All right, something we'll keep an eye on. Now we're going to move on to the U.S. Senate race. As we've learned, the leading Republican candidate in the race, Eric Hovde, did take a stance on in vitro fertilization. He said this week, he told the AP that he supports it. And this comes after several Republicans running in key national races have tried to distance themselves from this issue following the Alabama Supreme Court's decision that ruled that frozen embryos used in IFV are children and have legal protections. So, Jared, this is an issue that a lot of Republicans are struggling with, but for the Hufty campaign, they kind of got out ahead of it. But, but I, I was <laughs> they didn't say anything besides, yes, they, he supports IVF. So yeah. I asked a follow-up question. Does he, what is, what's his view of the frozen embryos left over from these treatments? Are they human life? No answer. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there is an issue for Hufty because he is now saying he supports uh, exceptions for rape and incest, uh, for example, with abortion. Go back to 2012, he wasn't there. Um, he said he called for Roe, overturning Roe v. Wade back then. What I'm getting at is abortion is going to be an issue in the Senate race again. They're going to knock him about this, um, and this is going to be potentially a problem because he's also seeking the support of these anti-abortion groups. So where you end up on those frozen embryos is important to those groups and when they're going to support you because of your uh, views on that. By the way, he also jumped in a lake in Madison, broke the ice this week, tried to prove he's a hardy Wisconsinite, um, not a Californian. So, you know, hey, it's all about going viral these days and getting right. attention and getting on, I think he got 800 some thousand hits or views of his video. 
So, but uh, yeah, it tells you where we're at right in the Senate race. Oh, right, and Hovde also launched his first television ad mm-hmm. of the race, worth mentioning this week. It was part of a six-figure statewide be- uh, buy that his campaign said started on Monday that will include several spots over the next uh, couple of months. So, to me, always when it's the first, it's just the beginning of many. <laughs> so, I've only seen one poll so far that put Hovde and Baldwin head-to-head. It was from Emerson College. It was on, I think, Tuesday. It was 46 Baldwin, 39 Hovde. So, I could argue... Both numbers are good and bad for them. Anytime you're incumbent under 50, that's not great. If you're at 39, you haven't really even assembled the entire GOP coalition in Wisconsin, so Hovde. So, but also, he has room to grow because people don't remember him from 20. I mean, we've talked about him off and on for years because right. he's flirted with so many bids over the years, but most voters are not paying attention to Eric Hovde. He has room to grow. Timmy Baldwin has room to define him before he gets out of that 39% range. Now, the one hitch of that poll, though, um, Biden v. Trump, it was Trump 45, Biden 42, which that result's not out of out of wrong possibilities. But it was the only poll I can remember seeing where the Democrat was winning independence by six points, but losing the overall vote. I don't know if that's just because polling's going to be weird this cycle, because Trump and Biden are so disliked. But something to kind of keep in mind as you see these polls, like the crosstabs can be very illustrative, like is there maybe a potential problem with the numbers? Again, not saying there is, right. but I don't usually see... The Democrat losing independence, but or winning independence, but losing the state of Wisconsin overall. So just keep keep keep, keep, keep your eye on that. Yeah, that'll be interesting. All right, let's get to stock picks this week. And rising is per diems because they're up compared to the last budget cycle. Yeah, which you know you would kind of expect because 2021 we're kind of still coming out of COVID a little bit, getting back to normal. There's 1.4 million dollars roughly, um, about a million bucks in the assembly, a little more 400 grand in the Senate. Let's look at the assembly first. Top, actually two of the top three. Uh, Per diem claims are freshmen, interesting. Peter Schmidt from Bondowell, Republican, had the most at more $19,000. Calvin Callahan, a sophomore, at eighteen five, And then Karen Hurd, another freshman, just shy of $18,000. We talked to her this week, so look, it's called hard work. She's on like six committees, co-chaired another one, so she's like, I'm, I'm putting in my time. Over in the Senate, um, has four hundred grand. The top is Musa Agard, who spent most of the year as minority leader at $19,000. Um, then after that, I believe uh, Devin Lemmy was like number three in there. No surprise with those guys. Oh, Tanya Johns was number one. She was uh, on the Joint Finance Committee. Kind of a, you know what you'd expect because you're serving on finance. Sure. Um, one other thing to note about these numbers, they're not including their mileage, which is separate, and it's on top of the 57000 and change in making their salaries each year. The very bottom of the list, Dan Canole in the Assembly claimed 1400 bucks. He left the Assembly in he the did. spring. Yeah, there you what go. a special election. And the Senate is Rob Hutton, uh, Republican from Brookfield. Those are some interesting numbers. Mm-hmm. Thanks for looking into that. All right, let's get to mix this week because this is going to be a much longer conversation in general because it's about Assembly Democrats um, because nearly a third that you've calculated, JR, and which we even just have heard in an announcement this week, is that a third of the caucus might leave even despite getting these new maps that Ever signed. It's almost counterintuitive, right? Like it's a light in the tunnel for Democrats. They've been basically trying to prevent a supermajority for Republicans for several cycles, and they're maybe in a spot to win a majority, maybe mm-hmm. get close but not get there, but they're leaving. Now the question is why? Well, for a lot of them, it's looking at something else. And, you know, I've got at least eight leaving, potentially 11, so I'll walk through people like Evan Goyke running for city attorney in Milwaukee, um, Katrina Shanklin running for Congress in the 3rd Congressional District. Um, so you've got people like that who are, oh, three Democrats in the Assembly running for the state Senate. Anytime a Madison Tennessee opens up, you have to go for it. Mm-hmm. So Jimmy Anderson, Simon Balde, and Melissa Ratliff, all Madison Democrats. 
Senate seats are like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity in Madison. Remember, Fred Risser served for 50 oh, years. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So if you got a shot, you got to take it. So there's those three. And the individuals running for uh, um, Lena Taylor well, seats. Those are my asterisks because okay, the yeah. ones retiring, retiring are Conley out of Janesville, Shelton uh, up in Green Bay this week, and Considine in Baraboo. Then you've got Marissa Cabrera, who's on the ballot this spring for circuit court. She has what she would do if she won. We assume she would resign, or because she can't do both, I don't think, uh, or be interesting. So I don't think she'll run for election in the assembly this fall, but hasn't said yet. Then you have the special election, which hasn't been called yet in the fourth. So you've got um, Dora Drake and Keisha Myers, both Milwaukee Democrats, both in that Senate seat. If they get a special election like this spring yet, it could be a free shot. What happens if that special election is pushed beyond the June 3rd filing deadline? What do you do? <laughs> so anyway, look at 11. 11 out of 34, that's a lot of people. Um, and it's just like you said, it, most of those seats are not ones you got to worry about if you're Democrats, right? Milwaukee and Madison seats are not competitive. They are like super deep blue. Shanklin's, it's a little bit better this map than it was before, like 55% plus. Don't forget that's a presidential year. It's northern Wisconsin. Trump does well up there. Republicans targeted her two years ago. So I don't know, maybe, but more likely the concern for Democrats is it requires recruiting people and keeping an eye on those seats when you're looking at like, where do I pick up stuff, right? That's our focus. They want to win new seats, not defend the ones they have. So it complicates things. Republicans, though, we haven't heard any retirements yet. It's kind of interesting because the feeling over there is like this, who's going to do what? Who's going to pull the who's trigger? Who's going to make the first move? <laughs> yeah. We have all these pairs going on. Um, we've seen a couple so far announce what they're going to do. Uh, William Penterman from Columbus, for example, Republican. He's moving from his Columbus-based district, which paired him with John Plumer from Lodi, another Republican, in a new Democratic seat over to a Watertown-based district, which is pretty red and has no incumbent in it. Okay, there's that one. Um, we're watching who else is going to move. Big question, Tyler August, the uh, majority leader in the assembly. Um, he was drawn to a district with Amanda Nagooski, sorry if I said that correctly, yeah. Republican from Pleasant Prairie. That district runs from Lake Michigan over Lake Geneva. Okay, They're both on the edges of it. Tyler is the speaker in waiting, essentially. I mean, the ex expectation, he's number two in the leadership chain right now, is he's being groomed to become the speaker when Robin Voss leaves. If he were to move to a different district, he'd have to be paired with somebody else on the Republican side. If she moves, she has Dem districts to run in. Like, there's not great options for them if they don't run against each other. Like, those are the questions people are wondering. What's going to happen in that caucus? And there's a little bit of a tension and nervousness right now. Uh, we have seen a couple of primaries announced, at least one. Um, Nate Gustafson from Fox Crossing, Michael Schra, Republican from Oshkosh, same district now. Um, Nate is 29, talking about need for generational change. Michael got elected in 2012, I think, the first time, mm -hmm. saying we need experience with these new maps. So that's an interesting one. But yeah, it's, there's a lot of like potential for upheaval. The Republicans, they just haven't announced it yet. Right. Something to keep an eye on. Aaron, following this week is Representative Janelle Branchin after there was that bombshell ethics report that alleges she was part of an illegal scheme to funnel campaign funds to Adam Steen, which is the individual who unsuccessfully uh, tried to primary opponent Assembly Speaker Robin Voss. So Dan Canodal, speaking of those maps, we go like, hey, I'm going to not run for the Senate. I'm looking for opportunities. Well, we think he's found one. Uh, he announced he's going to run for the same Assembly seat where Janelle Branchin is currently living. Remember, uh, numbers switched a lot because of how they're renumbered, but they're now, he lives in her district. What's branching going to do, and um, how's her prospects look politically with this legal question overhead? Now, the political thing, look, 
I don't want to diminish losing a seat, but that's like politics. You can lose a race sometime. The legal thing is a much bigger deal. The question is, if she faces a felony charge, will she be convicted? And then if she is, she can't serve in state office in Wisconsin. That's a problem. And in, I've talked to people since the story broke last week. The question has been, did she know and do it anyway, or was she ignore the law? So we're talking kind of like third party areas, you know, like working with parties. It's clear that a party can get unlimited donations from a, do a contributor and make unlimited donations to a candidate. But there's also prohibition on earmarking a contribution. So was Janelle aware of that and like scheme with Adam Steen anyway to like try and funnel money? Well, what was interesting in the report is that they, in a sense, they said that she should have known better. You know, as a state lawmaker, you should know your contribution limits. So, so that's also a question. Yeah. So no, it's in the DA's hands. Uh, it's fascinating. One, one of the more interesting parts of the stuff I read last week is they had to have known about it or knew something was up. Uh, one of the county party treasurers, actually, there's a, they took minutes mm -hmm. of a meeting that were in the record, and he said, is this money laundering? And it had a quote. Of, did said, we really just mess up? Did we really just do something wrong, illegal? Mm -hmm. So they had to have known, but they weren't hiding it. There was a, they, one of the pounding parties, like, put a note on the contribution from Trump's uh, fundraising joint committee. This is going to the party to help Adam Steen. Like, they knew what they were doing. Were they aware of the legality of it? So back to Branchen. Is anyone going to save her in any way, shape, or form? That's up to the local DA to decide. But she has a political problem, and she has a legal one. And by the way, she doesn't have many friends. Um, she's been alienated the entire caucus. Most of her caucus, some of her group of caucus. Does she need, who's going to help her in a primary of Dan Canodal if it happens this fall? A lot to keep an eye on. All right, that will do it for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. We'll see you next week. This program was brought to you from the Margaret Farrell Studio. Rewind, your week in review, is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association, bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate.